good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Maurizio Cecconi. I'm the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today for these 30 minutes with Professor Derek Angus. Hello, Derek. Hello, Mauricio. How are you? I'm very good and great to see you. Uh, let me just give a brief introduction. I don't think you need any introduction, but uh, just the first two, three lines of your CV. Uh, Derek is the chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine of both the University of Pittsburgh Medical School of Medicine, the UPMC healthcare system. He also holds the rank of a distinguished professor and the Mitchell Fink endowed chair in critical care medicine with secondary appointments in medicine, health policy, management, and clinical and translational science. And he directs CRISMA, which is the Clinical Research Investigation System Modeling of Acute Illness Center. He also co-directs the UPMC ICU Service Center. He's responsible for the provision of ICU services across 20 plus hospital systems. And with all that free time, he's also a senior editor at JAMA and many other things, but we cannot spend the next 30 minutes reading the rest of the CV, it will not be enough. So uh, great to have you with us, Derek. Uh, it's great to be here. So first of all, tell me, uh, how is the situation in the US where you are now with the pandemic? Uh, the situation is that it is endemic, not pandemic. Um, it's just become the new normal. Um, we have about 830 patients in our system today who are inpatients on a hospital bed or in an ICU bed with COVID. Um, and it just, uh, um, it's, people are tired. Uh, we, we, we know what we're doing. Uh, it's, we've developed a lot of routines, but people are missing uh, their old lives. I, I, I think that's very similar to many of us on the other side of the, of the pond. Um, just to remind everyone, if you are connected to our platform, you can post questions and we receive the, the questions and you can ask directly that uh, to, uh, to Derek. Um, so maybe for people to understand how is the work uh, in a US ICU? Uh, so how many beds do you have in your main hospital uh, building, for instance? And uh, again, how many of these beds do you have occupied with COVID now? Oh, so, um, so depending on how you count ICU beds, uh, it, we have about, in our main university hospitals, we've got about 250 ICU beds. And then we have another 200 or 250 across the system. The, the, I, I can't tell you an exact number because we think of the number of beds that we can staff. And... Uh, we have many ICU beds in terms of the physical place, but we're constantly struggling to actually have functional staffed ICU beds. Uh, we're trying to run on the nature of about 500. And I should say that most of our COVID now uh, is, is on the floors. We have ICU patients. Um, it used to be that 40% of the patients were ICU patients and half of those were um, long-term intubated patients. And now it's more like one in four patients go to the ICU. Um, 
And I think there's still the problem of patients. Some patients get stuck in the ICU, especially older patients who get a bad RDS picture, and then they still have that long, slow period. Um, but um, it's not as if, I mean, we have some ICUs that are filled with COVID, but it's not as if all of our ICU beds are turned over to COVID. I, I would say uh, I would say it's more like maybe 15, 20% of our ICU beds. So some units, it feels like every patient has COVID, um, but there are definitely other units that are uh, just trying to handle post-op surgical patients and so forth. Okay, and following up on this, I received a question on the chat. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Derek, you are originally from Scotland. I don't know if you worked uh, in the UK, or if you have any experience of the UK uh, critical care setup. Uh, what are the main differences between uh, US critical care versus European slash UK critical care, you think? Yeah, so... Um, I did work in the UK. It's been a long time. Uh, I would say, so when I was working in the UK, there were far fewer ICU beds. So in a hospital of, say, 500 beds, there might be one eight-bed ICU. Whereas in big university hospitals in the United States, if there were 500 beds, maybe 50 to 100 of the beds would be ICU beds. Now, that's changing, though, in Europe as well. I mean, certainly some of the big London teaching hospitals have huge number of ICU beds as well, the same in Berlin and other places. So there's still a difference in uh, the sheer proportion of cases. The, the U.S. and Germany have about 24 ICU beds per 100,000 people. And Britain has about four beds per 100,000. And France, for example, is about 10. Um, so there's still, uh, there's still a big difference in the overall supply. And that does mean that ICU beds in the United States, for example, are used for patients. Sometimes patients are not intubated. Whereas you basically have to be, when I was in the UK, you couldn't get in the ICU unless you, you basically went to the ICU because you needed to be on a ventilator. Yeah, that, that's very fascinating because the, the, if I look at the definition of what is an intensive care bed, uh, you know, it's actually, it's not very clear. Everyone knows where the patient that needs ventilation goes, which is the ICU. But there is this gray area which goes between wards, floors, and uh, an ICU. And what is the safe level of support that you can actually deliver in a non-ICU setting, outside of an ICU setting? And that area, it's uh, I find it varies a lot country on country, based on resources, but also based on tradition and cover of uh, physicians and nurses on the on the shop floor. Yeah, and also based on attitudes about how aggressively people should be cared for that are bigger than just attitudes about intensive care. So a lot of intensive care um, can be provided to very elderly patients. Um, and some countries are very aggressive about providing lots of intensive care, even to very elderly patients. But they're also very aggressive about providing all sorts of professional care. 
Um, you know, people are not expected to go to their home. Uh, they have to go to a skilled nursing facility. If uh, anything happens in that skilled nursing facility, they have to come back to the hospital. If they're a little delirious and they're having trouble breathing, or maybe you need to intubate. <laughs> so, so intensive care ends up being on the receiving end of larger societal attitudes about the overall relationship between what I would call professional healthcare delivery and society. Yeah, very clear. We have a practical question. I think I know the answer that you're going to give, but I would like to hear it from you. And we have Antonio Ortigas, a friend of both of us, is asking, are you using NAV or awake proning, I guess for COVID, uh, outside the ICU in the US? Yeah, so, um... Uh, people are definitely, uh, so that it varies a little bit from hospital to hospital. Um, uh, well, let me divide it in two parts. Um, the, the use of NIV is obviously being used in lots of places now. Initially, there was lots of fear about contamination with NIV and with high flow, et cetera. That concern has dropped a little bit. And um, there's such a there's such a sort of a learned there, there's not that many good randomized trials, but there's such a learned experience that some patients can be managed with NIV uh, that it's being used all over the world. And certainly in the United States, people will consider doing it. And it, it, it depends a little bit on how hospitals are set up. Um, if there is good respiratory therapy coverage on the floor and they're comfortable with NIV, then they can do a lot of uh, NIV on the floor. If they just don't have respiratory therapy staff and the nurses are not comfortable, then they really end up only offering NIV in a more monitored setting like an ICU. And it sort of varies from hospital to hospital. Even within our system, we've got big hospitals and little hospitals and we, we, we do almost like a custom organization of where can we provide NIV. Awake proning is very uh, interesting. I've noticed even the patients themselves sometimes want to prone uh, because they're, they're more comfortable that way. So um, uh, I, I think awake, awake proning happens uh, regardless of whether a physician has an attitude about it or not, because it's almost a natural phenomenon. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, maybe leads me to the next question, actually, because we've learned this while uh, the pandemic was uh, going on last year. And I remember you and I having discussions about this at the very early uh, phase. Um, I have to say, I've never seen uh, in my life, and I tend to try so many different treatments uh, just with personal experiences during the early phases of the pandemic. You know, we remember the, the hype of plasma that seems like it was curing everyone, but there were no trials, and then the trials came out. I'm part of the Clinical Guidance Committee with the WHO, and recently we made the recommendation of not using plasma unless it's outside of a clinical trial. But this continuous tension that you have as a physician at the bedside, willing to do the best for the patient that you have there and the fighting between anecdotes and, and evidence. Can you elaborate a little bit more? I like very much the concept that you were bringing about learning while doing, but still trying to do it with a method. 
Yeah. So <clears throat> I have, I, I have sort of big thoughts and little thoughts uh, about this point. Uh, I think COVID has really brought into sharp relief the tension between um, the, the standard way we've told ourselves we should generate evidence, you know, through randomized trials, et cetera, versus the huge compelling need to do something because the patient is right in front of you. Um, and we've tried to offer uh, like a, a middle road. Uh, so, so in many ways, Remap Cat, for example, was really designed, and I would actually say recovery has some of that feel too, of trying to do randomized trials really quickly and not being too caught up with sacred cows like placebo, et cetera, because you need to give an answer really quickly. And a perfect randomized trial that takes five years is useless. Um, and the interesting issue is, is even remap cap or recovery, are they even too slow? Uh, you know, because people don't even want to wait five months. They, they have a patient in front of you and they want to do something right now. So I feel like we have increased the speed of research log fold logfold it's unbelievable how fast we've done and you're part of it too i mean we've enrolled over ten thousand patients in in icu patients in remap cap um but uh um that might still be far too slow uh, like we need to go logfold again and part of me feels like we don't actually have any single system that meets everyone's needs today. Um, the question is, could we really rewire healthcare delivery so that you can actually generate evidence at a speed that meets everyone's needs? Um, you know, can you, can, can you leverage digital healthcare delivery systems such that as soon as the patient is in front of you, the entire world evidence can be available at your fingertips and you can have the probability of success given choice A versus given choice B. And can you actually have almost every moment be an opportunity where if there really is uncertainty, then you could randomize. And if there's an adequate hunch that A is better than B, then you just give A. You know, that... Closing the gap between the tension to try to make the best possible decision for the patient and yet at the same time make sure that you are generating and translating knowledge as fast as possible. It, it feels theoretically possible now with some sort of reinforcement learning models, but at an implementation level, we're still a long way off. We, we've made, it, it, it's like we've made incredible gains and it's still far too slow. <laughs> I was going to say, it's been incredibly fast and the work that you and others have done on preparing this, because I remember talking about uh, 
Prima Cup with you uh, and the ideas of a preparedness research platforms years ago in the event of the pandemic. And, and it's, it's very similar to how vaccines have been able to be deployed in a year. It was not that year of the research during the pandemic, it was all the preparation before, and that's been instrumental in that. But I agree with you, the, the other thing is that how do we transfer that knowledge at the bedside? And we've been very fast. I think there were studies in the past that were saying it was taking 13 to 17 years from a research breakthrough to become main uh, practice. And we got better, but I'm not so sure that we got really better, much, much better. I think we can do more than that in the implementation side of things. I think that before the pandemic, it was like organizing our lives on a file of facts. And I think recovery and remap cap and the vaccine trials, et cetera, are like the Palm Pilot. It's, it's the first time we've tried to digitize our to-do list, et cetera. But the Palm Pilot is not an iPhone. And it won't really be useful until we've turned the entire until the research enterprise is as functional as an iPhone or a true smartphone. And, and so we're in that weird place right now. We're in, we're in the, the palm pilot of clinical research. It, it's sort of, you can see the vision, but it's still pretty clunky and most people don't buy palm pilots. And I don't think we've seized all the opportunities there, even with data. Uh, I remember before the pandemic, actually my last meeting before a pandemic was a data thing that we hosted in my university, that there was all the hype about artificial intelligence and data science, and it almost felt like all the answers are there in front of you. We just need to share the data and analyze it. And I had the feeling a little bit that it's been kind of the big missing player in the last two years, or maybe I've not seen it, but I don't know if we've been able really to take registries and share data so that we can really bring that concept that every single patient brings information that is shared worldwide. I don't think we've done it as well as we could have done. Yeah, so of course, I mean, there's artificial intelligence and there's artificial intelligence. So, so a lot of the, the AI that we talk about on registries is still about either supervised or unsupervised learning, which a lot of statisticians would just feel are incremental advances over traditional regression math methods. Um, but it's still got some problem with causal inference. Uh, I think there's other parts of AI. I think reinforcement learning or prospective deployment um, is more flexible for causal inference. And then I do think, I do think eventually there could be a, a much better integration between randomized data and uh, observational data. Uh, and unfortunately, the people that live in those two camps are not really incentivized to join forces. You, you know, we think of them all as separate things, but probably we need an overall inference engine that uses a combination of the data. Um, and yeah, it's you, 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 can, you can sketch out what the future could look like, but again, that's only in theory. Um, even if we work out the theoretical models, that the, the logistics of having the, all the information come to bear 
so that it is available at your fingertips um, at the moment that you're about to make a care decision. Uh, that is not trivial. That is not trivial. And I, and I think people refer to this sometimes as when big data will meet big trials, which probably has not occurred as much as we, we could have done. Also because there is one thing that I, I it's always in my mind about COVID. We talk about COVID, but we've not been able to tell the public that actually COVID is basically part of the family of sepsis. So treating severe infections is what we've done for, for many years. And when COVID hopefully will be in the past, we still have sepsis to sort out. And with sepsis, it's far more complicated because we don't have one single disease. We have syndromes and phenotypes. And, uh, and so just applying everything that we learn from RIMAP CAP or the others will be complicated. We will have probably to bring more concepts there. What's your view on this? Are you already working on something? And uh, what should we do also to make sure that people realize that sepsis is really there, is not going away? Well, that's a, that's a, I mean, there are many things you said there that I could respond to. One thing I would say about, if you look at remap cap or recovery, uh, most of the things that worked still needed two or 3,000 patients to show it. So even within a homogenous challenge, and COVID is not that homogenous, but it's more homogenous than sepsis, you were still needing two or 3,000. And at the same time, we're already seeing that COVID has subphenotypes. We still don't really understand not just differences with the virus, but differences in host response. I think clinically, many people have seen people have weird coagulopathies, but not everyone. So what's the exact role for manipulating the endothelium and coagulation? The answer is it probably depends on some host features. And so, and, and with several thousand patients, even though the trials have produced overall positive results, we have uncertainty about which patients benefit and which patients don't benefit. So realistically, even just for COVID, if we really wanted to give nuanced answers on who should get TOSI, who should be heparinized, et cetera, we might be needing 20,000 or 50,000 ICU patients. And that's just for COVID. So the reason I bring that up is if you really want to crack sepsis and generate positive results inside sepsis phenotypes, gulp, you might be needing to look at sample sizes, trials that are way north of 100,000, way north of 100,000, just because just casually thinking about the, the variation in sepsis in comparison to COVID. And so we may just be totally, totally, we might have uh, exactly the right path, but at totally the wrong scale. Like if, if we could just link all of our ICUs up and have all, there are enough sepsis patients, but they're not all in one big learning module. Uh, realistically, if you want to get nuanced, sophisticated management of um, therapies that are targeting to individual host phenotypic variation and prove it, 
we're probably needing a scale we have not even contemplated in, okay, across but, our eyes. But if that, that may become just unfeasible, at least maybe for the next 10, 20 years, is it not that could, we could, Couldn't you fix it for ESICM? Couldn't ESICM? <laughs> we can try. But I was uh, saying, what about trying a different strategy, you think? You know, the, if you look at what oncology has done, and clearly they have a completely different ball game there, they actually move to very small trials on very selected phenotypes and genotypes of cancers and patients. Is there a possibility also for our research to go in that direction? Or you think, no, actually, it's, it's, it's completely different? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. First of all, um, Cancer, uh, I mean, there was definitely a degree of serendipity um, with Burka and, for example, with CTLA uh, and uh, all the revolution in immune checkpoint therapy. There were many other ideas for years. Um, I think um, it's usually easier to get smaller once you have a hit. Um, um, it, it, it like if you already if you only have negative trials going smaller is pretty tricky um, because you're narrowing but you're not necessarily narrowing in you don't know where your leads are um, uh, so yes I totally think once we know what we're doing <laughs> once we know what we're doing then we can get smaller um, but I would be uh, nervous about i mean that's what we've been doing for the last since the 1990s we've been trying to to carefully pick the winning strategy one drug for one particular phenotype of patient and and we just we we lose nearly every time uh i think i would go big first uh and then and then when i know uh, i would cast a big net and then when we uh, uh, then when we get a positive hit, then we can we can say thank goodness, and then we can start working on getting smaller related to that hit. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it, it makes sense. But maybe let me see if I understood. Is that what you did with process and the reverse trials, for instance, trying to go big on, on an idea of a let's call it small trial? Um. <laughs> So process, I was really hoping process was going to work because what I liked about <laughs> what I liked about the river study was this vision that if Manny was right, we could have a standardized first six hours that would really reduce variation in care. And so we would have tighter standard deviations and it would actually set a floor or like a base management strategy where everyone got the same basic package. And then it would be easier to then test small changes on top of it. Um, process, we always knew that process itself would be too small, which is why in the very first day, uh, I got in touch with both Ronaldo and with Kathy, and that's why we jumped, We did all three trials. Our funding agencies made them run as three trials, but we always envisioned combining all three because we always thought we needed 
6,000 patients, uh, even just to prove if Manny was right. Uh, and even with 6,000 patients, we, we couldn't prove it. But there's other issues there. I mean, I think early goal-directed therapy, that's another interesting thing to think about. If you do that as a randomized trial, you can only do it in patients who you've proven have shock. And so you've already given them their first liter of fluid or that first 30 cc's per kilo. And then after you've done that, then you randomize. And your baseline as CVO2s were completely different from the ones of Rivers, if I remember. Yeah. Um, well, that's not quite true. So our baseline were baseline after we put the catheter, yeah. whereas Manny was allowed to put the catheter in even before he'd done the resuscitation. Like, like the first thing he did was put the catheter in. So his, his baseline SCVO2 is kind of before you've even given the 30 cc's per kilo. In fact, which he said even the control arm was getting. Um, anyway, we have the last two minutes and we can go on with these conversations forever and we have lots of questions, but the, uh, I, I want to ask you the last two questions, if that's okay. Still on sepsis, um, are we may see some uh, low-hanging fruit here, maybe even with the public? If you see what uh, cardiologists have done with MI, neurologists with stroke, have we done well enough for a time-dependent pathology about recognition of sepsis in the community, for instance? The, I can tell you, in Italy, if I say sepsis, people will look at me and say, no idea what I'm talking about. No, we have not. I've actually just, I've just finished writing a little piece about this, uh, even, though, even though I'm an ICU doc, I think the number one priority for sepsis most sepsis happens at home. Yeah, correct. And we know very little about, about those beginning moments. It's even hard to know what to tell the public because we haven't even really studied it. You know, to try, we don't have good data on those first few moments. And for me, it is totally like, you know, that analogy of, if you drop your car keys in the dark and you cross the road to look for them underneath the lamplight, because that's where the light is. We study sepsis in the ICU because that's where the data are. But the problem, success for sepsis is probably about people never getting septic or never really blossoming. And we have never, ever really taken that seriously. I don't just mean public health messaging. I mean really thinking through what does community-based research look like to then even know what to tell the public. Um, but, but the number one priority for sepsis, in my mind, is probably to cut it off at the pass. It's probably to avoid people getting septic in the first place. And we've largely... We've really done a great job with reducing nosocomial sepsis. You do not get infected and septic in the hospital because of doctors nearly as often as we used to. 
The basic problem we're dealing with is community-based sepsis. And yet we're not starting the research program at the beginning of the disease. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we are overrunning one last uh, question because when you were saying that it's exhausting and we're tired, I was thinking that's exactly how I feel and that the majority of people I speak to feel, but we are still here in intensive care. And uh, what would you like to say to a young resident or to a young healthcare professional thinking about going to intensive care during this specific time? Oh, so, I mean, I still think, uh, so intensive care is just so inspiring. Uh, it's, it's a team sport. It's one of the most multidisciplinary parts of all of uh, medicine and healthcare. Uh, it is such a privilege that human beings give us their loved ones and completely trust us in their most exquisite time of need. That, that's a privilege that gives meaning to life and meaning to a career. Um, and then I think, so I think at the heart of it, it it's, an, it's a noble and meaningful endeavor. I also think that um, uh, it's a very exciting area uh, for not only for clinical care, but for research. There's an incredibly vibrant research community. And um, I, I think it's a great blend. It is the blend of science and compassion. So uh, I, I would think you would be crazy to do anything other than intensive care. I, I completely agree with you. And uh, really, I love your words. I don't think I could have said anything better than that. So Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you everyone for watching, for asking questions, for staying with us. This was 30 Minutes with Professor Derek Angus. Thank you all. Thank you, Mauricio. Thanks, everyone. Bye.